This morning, the scripture reading is taken from 1 Samuel 20. 1 Samuel chapter 20, and you'll be able to find that on page 335 of your pew Bible. We're continuing working our way through the life of Jonathan. And just as we sang about in Psalm 17 here, Jonathan, uh, David, Jonathan's friend, has been facing much opposition. Saul, King Saul, in whose court he has been working up to this point and who he has been faithfully serving, has now, in the past chapter, tried to kill David twice. First, to pin him to the wall with a spear when he's playing music for Saul in his palace, in his throne room. And secondly, he sends messengers to try kill David in his own home. Then we find David here fleeing, and we find Jonathan suddenly becoming aware of what his father has been doing. We read here in chapter 20, Then David fled from Naioth in Ramah, and went and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity, and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So Jonathan said to him, By no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing, either great or small, without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Then David took an oath again and said, Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, There is but a step between me and death. So Jonathan said to David, Whatever you yourself desire, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with a king to eat. But let me go that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. But if he is very angry, be sure that evil is determined by him. Therefore you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, If there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? But Jonathan said, Far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me? Or what if your father answers you roughly? Then Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So both of them went out into the fields. Then Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you, And send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to David, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed, and remain by the stone Ezel. And I'll shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot at a target. And there I will send a lad saying, Go, find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, Look, the arrows are on this side of you. Get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say thus to the young man, Look, the arrows are beyond you. Go your way, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed, the Lord be between you and me forever. Then David hid in the fields, and when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall, and Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's unclean. Surely he's unclean. And it happened the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, Please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, Why should he be killed? What has he done? Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. Then he said to this lad, Now run! Find the arrows which I, shoot, which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. 
So Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master. But the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground and bowed down three times, and they kissed one another, and they wept together. But David more so. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So far, the word of God. Here we see the covenant that Jonathan has made coming into action as Jonathan speaks with David, saying in verse 42, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me, and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever heard the saying, blood runs thicker than water? The idea that's commonly believed to be behind this saying is that family bonds are closer than those of outsiders. Some believe that it runs back to the days of sharing water as a sign of hospitality. Others believe that the water here might even be a connection to the church. And the water here is ta- that is talked about here is the water of baptism. Blood is thicker than water. Now, we remember, of course, that our first responsibility is towards our own family. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, that if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. But this isn't the kind of provision and protection of family bonds that this saying is describing. The idea behind the saying, blood is thicker than water, is that family ties override everything. When anything happens, you don't reach out. Instead, you circle the wagons. Everyone else outside becomes suspicious, a potential enemy, and everyone else inside is protected at all costs. Of course, God teaches us something different. God shows us how in times of need, instead of being closed off to the family of God, we lean on those bonds. Instead of shutting out, we open up and we reach out for help. And the family of God is called to respond with love while coming to walk alongside those in need. The thing is that this doesn't just happen in our time of need. For this to become our natural reaction is something that we need to cultivate. It's something we work on, both reaching out and preparing to have others reach out to us. So how do we cultivate these kinds of bonds? We have the opportunity to reflect on some of these thoughts in our passage today under the following theme, David and Jonathan, farewell in the Lord. And we'll see, first of all, the falsehood that separates, and second, the covenant that binds. Now,
Now, before we get into that in depth, you may have run into something interesting, this statement of Jonathan in our passage here today. David made his dear friend Jonathan aware that Jonathan's father is trying to kill him, but Jonathan can't believe it. By no means, he says in verse 2 here, you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. Why is Jonathan so certain that Saul doesn't bear ill will towards David? He feels he can't commit to supporting David unless he knows the truth of the situation. So he sets up a test and then he sets it up in a way, sets up a way in which he can tell David what will happen. But why does he need to go through all of this? Isn't it obvious? Looking at a chapter below, we see two attempts on David's life. One that would be very public, right there in the throne room. How can Jonathan believe that David, that, that Saul doesn't mean harm towards David? Well, we know that Saul has been hiding his attempts to kill David from Jonathan. Even the one that we find in chapter 19 where he commands David's bed to be brought into his presence so that he can kill him when he's told David is sick would have been hidden from Jonathan. But there's more than just Saul's hiding the fact from Jonathan. The reason in part is this. Everybody already knows that Saul is unstable. He is afflicted by an evil spirit. This has been the case for quite some time. This was the whole reason that David had been brought into the court in the first place, even before he had killed Goliath. His responsibility was, during these times, to sit in the corner of the throne room, to play music for Saul on the harp and sing, and then the evil spirit would stop troubling Saul. Now, in his dark moments, Saul had made the habit of sitting with a spear in his hand. And you can see this on multiple occasions. He has a spear in his hand while he's listening to music in chapter 19. He has one close at hand when he's in the festival in chapter 20. He has one in his hand in chapter 22 while resting in the shade, even while all of his servants are standing around him in a protective circle. You have to remember that there's absolutely no reason for somebody to be holding a spear. Even in this day and age, there's no ceremonial purpose to having a spear. There's no decoration or statement that's made in the same way that you might have if you had, say, a sword strapped to your belt, if you were part of the English nobility back in the Victorian era. The only possible reason that you could have a spear in your hand is if you wanted to use it. So I want you to notice two things here as you consider Jonathan's reaction. First, no one is surprised that Saul spends his day on his throne with his spear in his hand. And second, when he actually uses the spear, David escapes, Jonathan escapes, but their response is not that this is somehow strange or shocking. Jonathan is just angry He's hurt more by the insults and the betrayal 
than the fact that his father just threw a spear at him. This sort of speaks to Saul's state of mind, doesn't it? And to the way people perceived him. Here's a man who is completely paranoid. He's someone you need to actually watch very carefully because who knows if he'll throw a spear at you. He's done it before. But Jonathan sees the earlier attacks on David not as a sign of his father's wickedness as such. He sees this as a result of his father's rages, his father's episodes of madness. Can a man who is in the grips of an episode of madness be blamed for irrational behavior, he thinks. Even so, a deliberate plotting to destroy David moves beyond moments of madness. It moves into the realm of a rejection of God and a rejection of God's plan. And Jonathan can't believe that his father would willingly commit something so wicked. That he would do harm because of an affliction by an evil spirit. This he can accept. But that he would deliberately plot wickedness, he can't believe that. And his father encouraged his son's blindness to his own sin. His father's deliberately left him in the dark. Now there's a natural desire for us to look up to our fathers, isn't there? And Saul takes advantage of that. Even if they make bad decisions, it's human nature to hold them up in esteem, to want to get their approval and to want to find something in them to admire and to emulate. And most of the time, this is good and this is right. But it becomes a problem for Jonathan because Saul is really acting in a wicked way. Saul's actions are a rejection of God's will. His plots to kill David are a rejection of the Lord's plan to end the hold that Saul's dynasty has on his throne and instead place it after a man after his own heart. And in opposing God's decree, he's willing to stoop to anything. When his wickedness finally comes out into the open, he even tries to persuade Jonathan of the rightness of his cause. He'll replace you on the throne, don't you realize that? He shouts at Jonathan. Saul here is trying to appeal to Jonathan's selfishness here, to rope his son into his own sin by using his desire to preserve his own wealth and status and honor. He says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established or your kingdom. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And he fully expects Jonathan to listen to him. With these words, Saul tries to turn Jonathan into an agent for wickedness, a tool in his hand to oppose the Lord. But Jonathan will have none of it. You see, Jonathan sees this for the lie that it is. There is a belief that's out there that if you work hard enough at disobeying the Lord, then maybe you can make it work out in the end. If you work hard enough, instead of repenting and turning to him and asking for forgiveness, then maybe you can still enjoy success. Maybe you can turn aside what the Lord has said will happen to you if you continue in this path. And it might seem to work this way for a time. The psalmist writes in Psalm 73, verse 3, that he nearly slipped and envied the wicked because they seemed to prosper. 
More than that, we read in Acts that Saul himself reigned for 40 years. Saul had a long time to try and persuade himself that he could stand against the Lord. But Jonathan recognized right here and right now that ultimately the way of the wicked does not prosper because they are in opposition to the Lord. They don't find the blessing of the Lord on their way. To suggest that you can put yourself up against the Lord and somehow win, this is a falsehood that's been around since the time of the Garden of Eden. But it's a falsehood that even Saul himself doesn't truly believe. This brings us to our second point, the covenant that binds. It's at this point that Jonathan turns away from this sad situation and that instead he leans on his covenant Lord. He recognizes the blessing of having a covenant Lord, a God who has established a relationship with him. And he recognizes that this is a blessing that far outweighs any earthly tie. And in doing so, he also shows that he knows that his ties to the people who know and who love and who follow their covenant God run even deeper than the ties of family. In this way, you could put a new spin on the saying that blood is thicker than water. You may have even heard this one yourself before. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. The blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Now there are times when people in our lives who are near and dear to us do leave the Lord and reject the covenant relationship of God and even seem to turn against him. They try by force to change the outcome of what they know will happen if they continue in this way. And when we come to see this in their lives, it's a realization that deeply grieves us. Because we love them. We're no different than Jonathan. We love them. We pray for their repentance. And we beg God that he would turn their hearts back to him. But we also know that something has changed. And it's in this time that God calls us to lift up our eyes, beloved. To lift up our eyes to him and to look as well beyond him to the fellow covenant people of God. We turn to those who are our family in the Lord in capital letters. They are bound to us in the covenant. And the blood of the covenant, our covenant and faithful God who walks alongside us, who has been faithful through the generations, this covenant Lord ties us more deeply to each other than anything else could. We see this happening with Jonathan. 
After he meets this opposition from his father, this response from his father, he goes out to his friend David and he warns him. And after sending the boy away who has gathered the arrows, he lingers for a little while just to see if David will come out of hiding. David does. And instead of turning away from David in grief and in shame, he remains as David comes to him. You could say that in some way this is David's fault. Because if David had never existed, if the Lord had not promised judgment on Jonathan's own blood relation for walking away and there was no one to replace him, then none of this would have happened, would it? Jonathan could have rationalized it away in that way. Humanly speaking, there could have been a lot of bitterness that he could have shown to this brother who was bound to him in covenant. And yet he doesn't. David approaches him with caution, knowing the war that is likely going on in Jonathan's mind. Jonathan's father, after all, we just saw, had told him, send for David, bring him back so that I can kill him. And there is a war going on within the heart of Jonathan where he sees his own line and his own dynasty and he sees the command of his own father. And then he sees his Lord and his Lord's covenant faithfulness and this brother whom he so deeply loves because of his love and his passion and his desire to serve the Lord. David approaches him with caution and he bows down to the ground before him three times. The greatest number of times that anyone in the Bible does this act before meeting someone else. And in the gravity of the moment, David uses no words. He simply shows his willingness to humble himself before this broken and grieving covenant brother and to serve him in his sorrow. And Jonathan responds. He responds to this Middle Eastern expression of humility with another Middle Eastern expression, one that implies the acceptance of someone as a peer. They kiss each other. For you boys and girls, by the way, Middle Eastern kissing is not how we understand kissing in Ontario today. It's more like you'll find in say Quebec, if you go to church there and you meet friends there, it's a kiss on or beside the cheek or maybe even either cheek. This is a sign of acceptance, of of friendship and of seeing someone else as an equal to you. This is what Jonathan is doing for David. They kiss each other and then they weep. But David weeps the most. As his brother in the covenant, and more than that, as the one who was on the receiving end of that special covenant relationship between him and Jonathan, he knows how hard this is for Jonathan. Now don't get me wrong, he probably can't imagine the depth of sorrow that Jonathan is facing right now, but his grief, the fact that he weeps the most, shows his commitment and his loyalty and his love to the one who is the heir of to the currently anointed king of Israel. 
It shows his love for the one who is his brother with whom he made a covenant. It strengthens the bond as they share the grief of a lost relationship, of lost family. Now Jonathan stayed with his father. Although his father had betrayed him and had betrayed his friend, he stayed by his father's side right to the end of his father's 40-year reign. He stayed right to the moment when the two of them died on the battlefield as their armies disintegrated around them along with Jonathan's two brothers, Abinadab and Malkishua. The family bond did remain there. There is a love for family that runs deep. But for Jonathan, his deepest love was always for the one who was bound to him in covenant, the one who shared his zeal and his love and his passion for the Lord, the one who was his true brother and his true family. For him, the blood of the covenant was thicker than the water of the womb. Today, beloved of God, you and I have, as Proverbs 18, verse 24, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And this friend and this brother is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in him we find the blood that joins us to that covenant of grace with God and with each other. Right from the smallest of you boys and girls here today to the oldest one that sits among us. Christ's blood was poured out for us, beloved. And in this we become fellow brothers and sisters. We're adopted, you and me, into the same family with God as our Father. As we will see a little bit more extensively this afternoon in Psalm 27, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will care for me. He is faithful. There's that covenant name of the Lord again in capital letters. We're bound together in covenant to God, and the same God has rescued everyone who believes in him, tying us to him. We have a family here. We are all here members of the body of Christ. This is something unique, beloved. Something that many people in our world today don't have. And it can become so normal for us that we take it for granted. But this common hope, this hope of the gospel, this knowledge that we are all sinners in need of a Savior and we have a Lord who provided a Savior, who redeemed us, who loved us. While we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. We love him because he first loved us. This knowledge of the Savior who redeemed us and who loved us is what ties us together with bonds that run deep. Mark 13, verse 12 to 13, Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
Jesus was talking here about those same family members who would betray their Christian relatives just for being Christian. They would be angry with them for just faithfully following Jesus Christ and for calling their brothers, their sisters, and their children and their parents to repentance and even trying to kill them for it. This is something that still happens today. I have a friend to whom this happened and this resulted in him fleeing for his life because his own family tried to put him to death. But we have a covenant love which grants us a new family. We have a covenant love which holds firm, which gives us comfort even in the face of bitter sorrow. A covenant relationship in which Christ has joined us together into a new family, the family of God. So let us strive, brothers and sisters, to make this our family to be there for our brothers and sisters in their time of need, to direct each other's eyes to where our common bond lies, and to look to each other in our time of need so that God's name and the covenant relationship that he blesses us with can be honored, so that we can enjoy more deeply the riches of Christ's love with which he blessed us and the support that he grants us as we earnestly pray for the ones we love. Amen.